Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Jen Gerson. Hi. The New York Times and the Washington Post call her a freelancer. We call her family. Co-host of the universally beloved podcast, Oppo. Welcome back to Shortcuts. You know what? You're going to get me in so much trouble on Twitter if you call me family. <laughs> Jen... <laughs> Jen, today, today we're going to talk about Alberta, Alberta, Alberta. My favorite topic. And we're going to talk about the Globe and Mail's Thunder Bay Bureau of sorts. Good to have you with me. I'm happy to be here. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Tamara Turner, Mayan Kreitzman, Kaylee Crosby, Kendra Torvik, Ruth McWhorter, Lee Henderson, Sabrina Alcock, and Kate Lawson. My name is Kate Lawson, and I'm a graduate student in philosophy at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. I support Canada Lamb because it is an irreverent and relevant look at the man behind the curtain that is our Canadian media. It offers a much-needed dose of humor in the face of difficult topics, and it sheds light on important issues. 
And hey, Jen Gerson, this episode is brought to everybody by a new sponsor, an app called Dot Health. May I tell the people about this thing? Please do. I think that anybody who has had anything to do with our healthcare system, and that's, I guess, everybody, knows that so much of it is about like advocating for yourself and telling your story. And the nurse comes in and you say, the doctor's already been here, and here's what he said, and here's what we came in with. And you just have to tell the story again and again. And if you're advocating for somebody else, or you go to see a new doctor, moving your files around, making sure they're accurate, like that is such a big part of making sure you get adequate healthcare, that there's actually like services where you hire hire an advocate to do that for you if you don't have a family member. That is why I'm really happy to introduce our listeners to an app called Dot Health. What Dot Health does is it allows you to request through the app all of your medical records and then you are the master of your medical records. You have them on the app and you can share them at your discretion and never get shared without your permission with whoever you want to share them with. You can also check them over. What they found is that one in five patients will find errors in their personal medical records. I was hesitant when I heard about this because I thought, oh yeah, I'm going to give my medical records to an app. That sounds sketchy. And then we did our diligence and we found that you have absolute control. Their privacy is second to none. And they just, their business model is not made by sharing your medical information with anyone else. Their business model is you have this app, you request your medical records. And eventually if you request a lot, it's a premium service where you start paying them something, but you don't have to pay them to try it out because you listen to this podcast. You can download the app today on iOS or Android at dothealth.ca slash Canada land. And you can request your first medical record for absolutely free and see if this thing is a fit for you. I've tried it out. It works like a dream and I see a lot of value in this. Dothealth.ca slash Canada Land. Jen. Hi. You did it. Um, what did I do? No, don't well, blame you, me for this. No, you did it. You and your colleagues across the Alberta political press, you covered the hell out of that election. I mean, collectively, you vetted the candidates. You personally helped to uncover a hell of a scandal. Jason Kenney's team uh, running that fake candidate to do the dirty work of smearing his real rival. Mwah! Others uncovered other scandals. Kenny's party is now under RCMP investigation for voter fraud. Uh, Charles Adler did that masterful, devastating accountability interview with Jason Kenny. Bozos erupted. Policy was parsed. Analysis and punditry and so much more. Go team news. You did it. Did any of it matter? Well, of course it mattered. And you know what? That whole interpretation of what the great job of the Alberta media did on this election would not be shared by a significant section of conservative voters and supporters, especially on Twitter, who seem to now hate me. And I really do appreciate the fact that I've become like progressive Twitter's number one enemy to now conservative Twitter's number one enemy. It's a pretty fun transition for me, I got to be honest. I mean, I'm not saying that the media attacked Kenny up and down and voters went for him anyway, and therefore the media failed. Because I think that the media certainly did look at Notley's record and just said, like, we're not sure what she could have done differently. She was dealt a bad hand and voters need information. And the information is like, it is what it is, you know? Well, let's parse that. But first, I want to like preface this conversation by having a slightly philosophical conversation about the role of media, especially during election campaigns. Because please let's. I don't see my role as telling people how to vote. I write what I write and I write what I think and I report scandals when I get the opportunity to report scandals. But I am actually not doing that with the intent of manipulating 
or controlling an outcome. I can just put information on the table, like so much food on a buffet, and it's really up to the voters to decide how they're going to weigh that information. So I don't really get personally, like emotionally invested in outcomes. You know, if I have misgivings about the United Conservative Party, I'm going to tell you that I have misgivings about the United Conservative Party. But, you know, if voters choose to vote for that party, you know, over my analysis or over those misgivings, that's fine to me. So how is that philosophical? You mean you're not controlling the electorate? No, I'm absolutely not controlling the electorate. And I'm completely okay with the fact that I do not control the electorate. But I think that it's important for people to understand that because there are different philosophies of journalism around that. And I've seen other journalists who have a more activist bent, for example, get really disillusioned or disheartened when they've seen all this reporting come out. And it doesn't seem to have made a dent in actual voter intention. And I just sort of think that, you know what, that is the path toward burnout, if that's the way you're going at this. I think that if you're going to do journalism, you do journalism because you love it. If you're going to write a column to say something, you say something because it needs to be said in your heart. And, you know, you have to detach yourself from the outcomes of all of these things, or you wind up just getting horrendously beaten down and depressed. Yeah, I'm trying to depress you in a totally different way. I'm not oh, saying, okay. you know, oh, oh, Kenny won any. That's exactly what I need right now, J- Jason. I've had like four hours of sleep. I'm sure that I'm not even coherent. That's just, <laughs> no, lay it on me. Depress me more. Well, you just called me Jason, so I, I, I <laughs> oh, have a feeling shit. that. <laughs> well, you're a bunch of bellicose white men. So as far as I can tell, you all look the same to me. All right. We'll let you sleep soon. It's coming. That's a lie. I literally can't even sleep today. That's not <laughs> even something I can do until like 11 o'clock tonight. <laughs> I'm sorry for that, but... Uh, Why did I agree yet. to come on this show? I don't know, but you're on the show. So. I felt Here. really bad. I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I should come on. He's going to call me family. I'm going to get guilted into this. All right, fine. All right, let's go. <laughs> All right, listen up, fam. Here's what Charles Adler tweeted. Idea that majority of voters are affected by campaign controversies is capitals false. Two weeks ago, I was involved in one. Every single interviewer wanted to know whether my intense conversation with Jason Kenney would damage him. Not at all, I told them. If anything, it would make him stronger, and it did. Jen, what I'm pointing out now is not, oh my God, how did all of this media criticism fail to separate the electorate from Jason Kenney? Like, whatever. Like you say, we lay it out. People can do with it what they will. What I'm kind of questioning here, and the way that I'm trying to bum you out, is like, if no one had written one word about this election, would the outcome have been any different? I suspect in this case, probably not. This was a really fascinating and singular kind of election. And there's so much to unpack with it that it's worth getting into. Because I think that what people in the rest of Canada in, you know, liberal, elitist enclaves south of the annex don't understand is that things suck here. Like they suck bad and they have sucked very bad for years. People kind of understand in a general sense that, you know, generally as a result of the lower oil and gas prices, that uh, the economy in Alberta has been really suffering. But what they don't necessarily see is the human impact of that suffering. Like, there was a suicide spike after 2015. There is an entrenched opioid crisis in Calgary, one of the richest cities in the country. You know, during the polar vortex, I literally saw people out in minus 40 degree weather begging on highway medians. And that became a common sight on the way of to dropping my kid off to daycare. Like I've run into countless times now, you know, in grocery stores in seemingly well off suburbs where, you know, people's all of their credit cards and all of their interact cards were being declined. I mean, these were things that you didn't traditionally see in cities like Calgary 
five, six years ago. And now they're just really, really common. And they're, they're common in ways that impact ordinary people in ordinary lives. And what, what that's left with is a population that's extremely stressed out, extremely desperate, and very, very angry. And it doesn't really matter what condition, it almost doesn't matter whose fault it is, an incumbent party is always going to wind up eating that. So the math for an NDP victory under even the most perfect scenario where, you know, you had Jason Kenney's team screw up even more than they did and you had Rachel Notley run a basically pitch perfect campaign, which she didn't. Even in that kind of a scenario, her path to victory was pretty damn narrow. And let me tell you, Rachel Notley did not run a perfect campaign. And here I am sitting in downtown Toronto, south of Queen, just sarcastically saying, oh, boo hoo to every Albertan who's hurting. And wait, no, I actually did that last week. I, yeah, I, yeah, that uh, was that was a bit of a jerk move. And to be honest with you, that is the type of attitude that got Jason Kenney elected because like sure. Albertans know that people like you just don't care. We don't care. But the thing is, I do. And I got a lot of emails from listeners in Alberta about that. And, you know, I'll walk back what I need to walk back. I said boohoo, but I said it uh, indiscriminately and uh, I misspoke. I, I do have a big boohoo to people who chased a boom and bust economy and who chased six-figure salaries that otherwise would have been half that or a third of that, and then act surprised when the bust comes and act like the country owes them those careers in perpetuity and that level of salary in perpetuity, and who turn to things like xenophobia or separatism or just loony nonsense. That kind of Western grievance, yeah, I don't have a lot of respect for. Do I care about people who lost their jobs, who might be losing their homes? Fuck yeah. Do I think government has like a role to play in smoothing a transition and finding a place for those people and, and some path for them to work again and sustain themselves again? Absolutely. I do have, I think, a dismissive reaction when it comes out as entitlement or grievance or anger. I don't have a, a lot of appetite for that. Well, there's two things I would unpack there. And there's another dynamic that you should probably be aware of. And that is, traditionally speaking, the high school dropout rate in Alberta has been higher than any other place in Canada. I don't know if you know that. I mean, outside of like the territories, for example. And there was a reason why that was. It's because there was a time when the economy was literally so good that a 16, 17, 18-year-old male could go get a job in the oil patch or even go get a job at Tim Hortons and make $24 an hour and build a career around that. So what happened to like basically generations of especially these young working age men is when this boom happened – the less educated section of this population got laid off and was really can totally lack the sort of CV and resiliency to bounce back. And so like, there's that kind of dynamic going on at play as well. Also, like, I don't read it so much as entitlement to six figure jobs. I'd sort of read the grievance as there's two parts to the grievance. On one hand, I think people do understand that yes, that this is a bust situation, oil prices went down, there was a shale fracking boom in the US. And there's a lack of pipeline capacity to sort of equalize the difference between those two issues. And to some extent, yes, people here understand that that's beyond any provincial government's control. But there are still things that are within the federal government's control that could have a really significant positive impact on some of these issues. For example, you know, not slowing down and dragging every single pipeline project through a decade of regulatory morass. You know, Bill C-69, for example, there's a reason why they're calling that the No More Pipelines Bill, because there's a genuine belief here in Alberta that Trudeau is passing Bill C-69 is going to set up a regulatory regime that basically makes it impossible for infrastructure projects to get approved. So you have a lot of capital flight leaving the province. Um, you have an extraordinary amount of investor uncertainty. And even despite the low price of oil and gas, 
all of this is being exacerbated by actions coming out of Ottawa. And on top of that, you have the political situation. You know, this is this is a province of 4 million people. It only has 34 federal seats. Its political power absolutely pales in comparison to the needs and political power of Quebec and Ontario. So when you see stuff like huge bailouts going to Bombardier and ethics scandals to try and preserve, you know, SNC-Lavalin and general indifference to, you know, estimates of between 60,000 and 150,000 jobs lost in Alberta and, you know, depends on how you count those. You know, that hurts and that makes people here feel like, you know, central Canada just doesn't give a fuck about our suffering and our issues. John, wake up, wake up. You're having a nightmare. You're dreaming that you're talking to Justin Ling on Oppo. I don't care about the policy. I'm not here to talk to you. If I was here to talk about the policy, I would say that maybe instead of like trying to create more pipeline capacity, Alberta maybe should have been creating a better social safety net during those boom years and creating some path forward outside to diversified economy. I would say Justin Ling, things like that. Save it for Oppo. I'm here to talk with you about the media side of this. Oh, well, uh, fine. All right. Whatever you want. It's your show, I guess, Jesse Brown. <laughs> Why do you want me here if you don't want wonkish policy talk? What am I? What good am I for you? I want to talk about the fact that critics of Jason Kenney had their Twitter accounts suspended on the eve of the election. Oh, yeah. I vaguely remember that. That happened 24 hours ago, right? Yeah, the sprawl. That's what happened. So now we're putting all this pressure on the big platforms to regulate bad political speech. And here they go. And they're just like kicking off absolutely valid political speech. Even people who are going and doing like citizen journalism, like, like, oh, the UCP is like taking signs off of people's lawns. And we're going to expose it through video. And that account gets booted off of Twitter, I'm sure, because of some behind the scenes. Wait, wait, that wasn't the UCP. That was like a crazy fight over like a landlord got into a huge fit because his his tenant had had an Alberta party side on their lawn and he lost it and started destroying it on video. Like that was that. And then apparently the tenant and the landlord and the candidate whose sign was destroyed completely made up. It was actually a really great story. Well, I don't know what it is because the account was suspended from Twitter. I think this is fascinating because here we're starting to see how cyber social media political warfare is really playing out, right? So my understanding of the mechanism is that essentially all of these accounts were identified and then mass flagged. Is that right? On the day before the election? Like- well, I mean, somebody was reporting them to Twitter and then the algorithm decided, yeah, let's let's kick them off and that they could come out of Twitter jail after a day or two, I, I'm sure. Yes. But at so a that, crucial that- time in a democracy when those voices are part of the democratic process. Do we and- know who exactly was doing the flagging? I, I mean, don't think we do at this point. No, I mean, that's the, and that's another the accountability part of it is another thing that's missing with these platforms. This is like a totally fascinating tactic. There's one thing I would say about this. Twitter on the day of an election is not deciding an outcome like that is not pushing anybody to vote one way or the other at this point. Oh, oh yeah. Twitter had no impact, nor did your stories or anything anyone wrote. Let me, you know, we can accept that. It's a really interesting story to talk about. But, you know, let's not pretend that this like was the thing that decided it for the UCP. It absolutely wasn't. But it's an interesting sign of things to come because it's the type of tactic I would absolutely expect to see coming from other campaigns in the coming and yeah. coming elections. Yeah, you figure out how to game. You how figure to game out how to reporting. game the system and like yeah. you flood opponents with bots or I mean, we've, but we've also seen this in, in recent years, like people signing up dozens of social media accounts in order to harass 
known opponents and known media figures and those sorts of things, right? So this is just an extension, I think, of, of those sorts of online Twitter wars. But like you say, none of it matters and none of it mattered and none of this conversation. Because in Canada, all that matters is people get fed up with the incumbent when the economy takes a downturn and we vote people out of office. And it doesn't matter what the press says. And it doesn't matter what Twitter says. And nothing's going to stop it. And you could find out that Jason Kenney eats babies and it wouldn't, you know, none of it matters. Well, right? I mean, I mean, I don't think none of it matters. I think campaigns matter a whole lot. I think that when people tune in and the sorts of messaging they get from a party matters an extraordinary amount. I think that mathematically, this particular race was unique in that it was very, very difficult for, for Rachel Notley to maintain power. That said, there was a path to victory for Notley here. I think that there, there was an, a way for Notley to win. The problem that I had with Notley's campaign is that I think it relied so heavily on the bozo eruption stuff that by the end of it, it was just really easy for a lot of Albertans to just be like, and eh, this is a bunch of progressive character assassination. We don't have to listen to any of it. And as a result, it kind of led to this backlash effect. And Notley was just totally unable to present herself as someone who could credibly turn the economy around and create the diversification that Alberta needs to move toward. So like- All right, fuck it. If it must be oppo, let it be oppo. Given that- can yeah, help it, man. Given like, that, I, you're getting me four hours out after a goddamn election. What do you expect from me? No, no, I'll, I'll go with you there. So I, I kind of agree. And I feel like uh, if all Notley had was you guys are a bunch of- scary racists uh the electorate was like you're not going to scare us yeah and that was really and that's why andrew shear is going to win because that's all that trudeau has left too right yeah and that's i think exactly right like if all you've got is those guys are giant bigots that is not enough i mean that should be enough but it should be enough but it's not enough. well it's not enough alone to win like you know what i think you need to come at it with a much stronger game i think that that's the the takeaway like i'm not talking about the morality of it i'm just talking about pure strategy if you're a progressive party you need to know that it takes more than that to win. And that's, I think, the lesson coming out of the NDP. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. 
Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. All right, Jen Gerson, on shortcuts, unlike Oppo, we have uh, a thing on shortcuts called Duly Noted, which you don't have on Oppo at all. Do you have something? No, we like to talk about long and extended rambling policy wonkish crap. It's way better. Flabby cuts. I would like a shortcut. What do you have today? <laughs> well, apparently, Atlantic Canada's largest newspaper publisher says that it overpaid when it purchased a whole bunch of Atlantic Canada publications in April 2017. This appears to be an allegation of fraud. Fraud. Basically, Saltwire, which acquired 28 Atlantic publications, is claiming that uh, Transcontinental, which is the company they purchased it from, basically inflated a whole bunch of earnings figures and valuations when they bought all of these publications. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Jen, this story is very amusing. It reminded me of that Tronk newspaper chain. Like the background to this Saltwire thing, like they were, the, it was the Chronicle Herald and it was like these multimillionaires who had a standoff with their workers for like, I don't know, like a year back in 2016. And they claimed poverty. They couldn't pay proper wages. And then after they settled the strike, they acquired a ton of newspapers and announced, oh, at an inf- massively inflated price by the sounds of it. And now we learn they announced, oh, Saltwire, the, uh, Canada's newest newspaper chain, Atlantic Canada, has this amazing new digital blah, blah, blah with, you know, transcontinental dumping these papers. And then it turns out that they got trunked and the papers like there was like a $13 million HST bill that they allege was uh, not disclosed. They didn't deliver thousands of flyers they were supposed to deliver. Uh, surprise, surprise, buying a newspaper chain in 2016, 2017. Uh, these are distressed assets that might not be worth as much. Like, I don't know what they did. And, and Tim Bousquet from Halifax Examiner was writing about this. Like, I don't know what they did, if anything, to to test what these were actually worth before acquiring them. And it's hard to feel sorry for them. Well, I mean, I do understand that this is a case of schadenfreude and that we do tend to like shitting on uh, multimillionaires who own the means of production and everything. But I would point out this, that just because an organization has capital to make an acquisition doesn't necessarily mean that the operating spending is sustainable. So like those are usually two different columns from two different types of, I don't know, two Excel sheets. I don't know. The columns and numbers and things are different. Wow. It's so, ca- uh, if you're going to so cape technical. for management while exhausted, I might actually win. Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm not caping for management. I just think that, that people should be conscious of that. And that being said, uh, while it is really funny to think these guys got taken for a ride by Transcontinental, if in fact all of these chains are worth diddly squat, all of those jobs go away. So I don't know if that's something to be cheering for, really. Well, you know, the newspaper bailout's coming, so they'll be just fine. They'll be just fine. Duly noted. I have one. Go for it. I'm going to stand up for a pornographer, but not a pornographer. Oh, oh, God, my Twitter mentions. So here in in these here parts called Canada, it's illegal. It's, it's child pornography to depict child sex, even in prose, like in writing. And a novelist in Quebec, and I apologize to him for mangling the pronunciation of his name in advance, Yvonne Godbu, was arrested along with his publisher in March for a book called Hansel and Gretel, which apparently has very little to do with the Brothers Grimm fairy tale, because of a scene depicting some sort of sexual scene with a child. And I don't know, does Lolita get a pass? Like, what are we talking about here? This is a longstanding thing in our law. And um, I remember when Lost Girls, this Alan Moore comic book, was seized at the border 
this is where things really veer into just out and out censorship. And it's been this way for a long time, but uh, it ain't right. And uh, because this is happening in Quebec, uh, it hasn't gotten a lot of coverage in the rest of Canada. If you're going to be a defender of free speech, child pornography, even in a literary form, starts to become one of the really hard cases to defend, right? Like, because everybody who has any sense is horrified by the prospect of any adult uh, being turned on by child porn. However, I mean, the distinction between literary child porn, in which, you know, it's Lolita, the product of someone's imagination, pure and simple, and actual, you know, visual child porn, in which children are actually harmed, is a really important distinction to make, even as, even if as a society, it makes us, for the most part, feel horrified and sickened. Yeah, I don't feel like that's a complicated distinction. If children are harmed, it's a crime. If somebody drew a picture or wrote down words, it is not. It's a thought crime and it should be legal. So, Is there a hypothetical devil's advocate argument that I could make here that suggests that the sort of imaginative literary stuff might lead to harm or might encourage people toward indulging in pedophilic urges that will eventually lead them down the road of consuming child porn in which children are actually harmed? Like, yes, no, who cares? I mean, there's like people who will argue that it stops people from manifesting this in reality. There's people who will say that it's a gateway drug. At some point, the state has to decide what's art and what's porn. If like, you know, I feel like this is kind of uh, I'm familiar with these arguments for many, many years. But for me, there's just a hard line when you are policing what somebody can write in a work of fiction, what they can draw out of their imagination. It's just not the place for the government. That's how I feel about it. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely going to let you take that take. Okay. Duly noted. Okay, Jen, the last thing I want to talk with you about today is the Globe and Mail's Thunder Bay Bureau. I am largely unfamiliar with the Thunder Bay Bureau. Could you explain to me what it is and why it exists? Yeah. Why don't, why don't we check in on this? It's something that I've paid a lot of attention to since it was announced in January. Let me walk you through uh, how this has played out uh, as far as I can tell. In January, the editor-in-chief, David Walmsley of The Globe and Mail, kind of like, you know, following Tanya Talaga's coverage for the Toronto Star, following her book, Seven Fallen Feathers, following Marie Sinclair's report and the OIPRD, you know, these reports that expose that, yes, there's terrible systemic racism in Thunder Bay. And yes, following our, our Thunder Bay podcast, The Globe and Mail's editor-in-chief announced that they would be setting up a one-year bureau in Thunder Bay. And it's not like they didn't have a claim on Thunder Bay themselves. They, of course, were the news organization that uh, covered the Adam Capay solitary confinement search, really about Thunder Bay's prisons, uh, not so much Thunder Bay itself. But I took this news that the Globe and Mail was setting up shop in Thunder Bay as an incredibly positive development. There was a certain pomposity to Walmsley's announcement. We cannot leave the stories of Thunder Bay to a previous year. We must go back to Thunder Bay and this time stay. Our editorial board will move for a time to the city. You know, I kind of swallowed my distaste for that Globe and Mail, you know, because like there are people telling the stories of Thunder Bay, like, you know, this this kind of idea that like the Globe. And- well, it's, it's the idea that the paper of record has an obligation to this place. Yeah, which they do, but they're coming late to it and kind of claiming that's fine. I, you know, I, I have a balance of things in my mind and in my, uh, you know, temperament at all times. My feeling was this is you're good. very balanced. You're you're notably balanced and fair-minded. Thank you very much. My better angels prevailed, and I applauded this. Uh, the more journalists there, the better. It's been an underserved community, and, and what's going on there is important. So yes, Globe and Mail, go to Thunder Bay. So now we check in on this, and for a while there was nothing, and then finally Gloria Galloway 
had this big kind of magazine feature on, I think it was a Saturday weekend edition of the Globe and Mail. Beautiful photographs, by the way. And a story that, I don't know, it, it sort of left me a bit cold. It was a bit of a view from the treetops, you know, kind of orienting the Globe and Mail reader who might have no prior knowledge with Thunder Bay of like, here are the big issues, here are the different interests at work. It was fine. So it's a table setter. Yeah. She wrote a table setter. So I'm like, okay, what's coming up next? And then there's nothing. And then this past weekend, there's a follow-up story, not by Gloria Galloway, but by a Globe opinion writer, uh, Eric Andrew Gee, or G. I don't know. It's Marcus G. Oh, are we going to sh- don't, don't you be shitting on opinion writers, man. It's fine. They sent their opinion writer, and he, but he wasn't doing opinion. He did this story about the campaign at Fort William First Nation, which is the reserve that is directly in Thunder, like kind of like just over the bridge from Thunder Bay. It's not one of these faraway reserves. It's it, it sort of shares Thunder Bay. Okay. And the headline was, in Fort William First Nation, band uses election to press forward despite echoes of colonial past. And, you know, I read this, nothing really enraged me about this piece. I'll try to summarize it as best I can, as fairly as I can. It was like a look at this election as it was playing out. The main roads of Fort William First Nation are a riot of campaign signs a week before voting day. Some are hand-drawn on neon Bristol board. Others are carved out of plywood to look like Montreal Canadiens jerseys. So you've got this like young opinion writer coming in from Toronto and like, oh, look, they're doing democracy here on the reserve. And talking about Welcome the f- to how Alberta feels all the time, by the way. Well, you know, these are the issues of of parachute journalism, right? Of helicopter yes, journalism, yeah. of dropping in and, uh, ooh, you know, uh, what's going on here? And This is, I'm going to start my piece off with some color. Yeah. This is a pretty standard journalistic tactic where you're trying to engage an audience that is remote and disinterested. And one of the ways that you do this as a, as a technical exercise is to paint a picture, right? It's to paint a, an image of the place to get that sense of mise-en-scene in a reader's mind. Absolutely. And pointing out like from his perspective as a, as a Toronto journalist, ooh, like there are these flamboyant neon election signs. That's different. Oh, a lot of these candidates have the same last name, family dynasties. What sets them apart are their nicknames. So it's very much outside looking but, in. But that, that's fine. But I mean, that's the audience the Globe is writing too. I mean, they're not writing those articles for the people of Thunder Bay. Well, that's really interesting. And that's one of the things I want to talk with you about when we get to the analysis portion of this. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead. No, no, that you're, you're right there. I mean, like, that's a big question here. But, you know, it, it plays out. There's nothing like I found like terribly offensive, you know, like he, he's just like, here's what this election looks like to me and includes some history about, oh, one of the candidates wife, uh, was, was caught up in a corruption thing years ago, you know, like a lot of tropes of how people think about indigenous electoral process are kind of like hinted to and gestured to, but he's also trying to be fair. He's like, well, you know, this is the colonial process. Like we sort of force these communities to do democracy and that's, like you could write some of this about any banned election anywhere in Canada. And it's just like, for some reason, I'm doing it here. And there was no follow up. There was no second piece about the actual outcome of that election. Peter Collins won the election. The Globe and Mail wasn't doing election coverage to inform that electorate. But the piece was like, you know, it wasn't like, I, I don't know, somebody else might find it terribly offensive. I didn't. I just wondered, like, who is this for and why is this? It sounds like it's almost like the same mentality that a lot of people have when they become foreign correspondents. Yeah, right? that's right. It's like, okay, I'm going to get parachuted into London or Paris and try to explain Brexit to the people back home. Except that the Globe Mail should not be a foreign correspondent in Canada. You know, like indigenous issues should not be foreign to the Globe Mail. Okay. So in the comments, the piece, whatever, I'm not trying to shit on the piece. Like I think he tried to do his best. And then I read the Globe and Mail comments and they're what you'd expect. Somebody writes, oh, the Neanderthals made the same complaints about Cro-Magnons. 
essentially this racist comment uh, suggesting that indigenous people are a different species than the rest of us and a less oh, a lesser- I mean if we're going to get into racist comments on every single piece that ever gets written about um indigenous issues I mean I think this is the reason why the CBC had to shut down all comments on anything that even touched oh, on First yeah. Nations issues like like you can't write a piece about any First Nations issue, however benignly, without having to wade through shit tons of incredible racism online. So why are they doing this? I mean, it went on and on. There was comment after comment saying, oh, please. Oh, they, they 100% just should have shut down the comments on that story. But it raises the bigger question, the question that you brought up at the beginning, like, who is this for and why? The global Well, let's, mail- not, let's not pretend that the commenters, the people who leave those comments at the bottom of the page are not your representative audience here. So let's let's also keep that in mind i don't know i don't know these things attract i mean i i have a i mean maybe i'm naive but like i think that stories like this attract the absolute worst of the worst and bring out the most vile of the most vile who spread nastiness like this against first nations line because the prejudice against first nations people in this country is very deep-seated it is deep-seated and it's widespread it's widespread but i don't but i don't think that it goes from that to saying that you know, this article that the Globe is writing is intended to be written for racists. Like, that's a pretty big logical leap. Well, let's come back to that, okay? And, and there's more information I can share with people. Because I looked into this and I asked Gloria Galloway, like, what is this, like, bureau, this much fanfare bureau of the Globe and Mail? Like, are there any indigenous journalists there? I asked her that at the beginning and she's like, well, you know. Well, and, but before you go there, because I think that's an important point, but I think there's something that you also need to know is that this is a lot of how people in the rest of Canada, outside of Ontario and Quebec, feel when people from the globe or people from national outlets parachute in to cover their local elections or parachute in to cover their issues. Like, this is a problem that people in Alberta gripe about a lot because there's a weird sort of like, you're a foreign entity filled with a bunch of like, you know, cowboy hat wearing yahoos. Oh, and your economic issues suck. Boo hoo. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is, this is, this is a weird mentality when you have so much of your media centralized in Toronto and Quebec, right? I take your point, but I'm going to push back because I think that the Globe and Mail does consider the Albertan voter part of their readership. And I think that the, that the Globe and Mail does consider Alberta companies their advertisers. And I think that the Globe and Mail considers that in a way that it does not consider the residents of Fort William First Nation. Well, I think that's exactly correct. But I mean, I think that's also just a reflection of the fact that, you know, Alberta and Saskatchewan and Manitoba, all of these places have significant populations and significant advertiser bases. So they are their readers because they they know exactly how many Albertans and Manitobans and British Columbians are subscribing to their newspaper, right? And that shifts your perception of audience pretty significantly. Whereas what is the subscriber total for Thunder Bay? And and or even like like Lethbridge, if you were or to go to a small town Moose Jaw, you know, if you were to do this type of a project in Moose Jaw, would you be writing it Tonally speaking, as a technician, would you be writing it for the people of Moose Jaw or would you be writing it about the people of Moose Jaw for the rest of Canada, right? It's an interesting question. It's an interesting question. But I will say like that tonal problem that you're pointing out is something that even in a province as large and prosperous as Alberta, we feel that too. Yeah, but I'm not talking about you. That's fine that you feel that way. No, no, but I'm, I'm just I'm pointing out that this isn't this isn't just a Thunder Bay problem. There's there's like a us versus them mentality in the media that comes across in articles. Okay, like sure. This. Toronto sucks. I got you. But there is a well, you know, it does suck. No, it does. Yeah. <laughs> but there's another problem, which is the way that indigenous issues and indigenous governance and indigenous people have been covered since this country began and beforehand, which is that we gawk and we we're not serving them. You know, like our, this. Yeah. Maybe that's where you and I are agreed here is that like it's very clear that whatever the Globe and Mail is doing in this Thunder Bay initiative is not for the service of Thunder Bay. It's not for Thunder Bay. It's it's extractive. 
just because the tonal issue is is that they're covering Thunder Bay for an audience that's not in Thunder Bay, does that mean that the intentions are therefore sullied or not pure? Does that mean that they're not bringing attention to issues and problems that the rest of Canada needs to be aware of? Well, that's borne out in the coverage. That's borne out in the stories or not. And I guess why I was encouraged by this initially was I thought like, I really hope they go there and do some great journalism and, and uncover some things and tell some stories. So there's more to come, but like, I'm not encouraged by the fact that there are no indigenous journalists involved, and I'm not encouraged by the fact that the Bureau, as it's been explained to me, is a Globe journalist in like an Airbnb, like an apartment that the Globe has rented for a year, goes for two months or less, and then leaves, and then another journalist comes in and does a story and then leaves. One of the things that I will say this is someone who's been working the Alberta correspondent gig for a really long time now. You know, you kind of have to be in a place for a year at least before you start to get a feel for it, before you start to develop the contacts that you need to develop to break stories. Everything that you do in the first year after you move to a place is by definition pretty shallow. So if you're just transitioning people in and out for two months at a time, there's a question as to how in depth you're going to get into that community and how much trust you're going to build with that community to be able to cover them fairly. And I also, I would share your concern, like the fact that there are no First Nations uh, journalists covering this bureau or embedded in this bureau is a really problematic thing. Yeah. Like at this point, it just feels like the only thing they're adding is like, we are just by sheer virtue of our presence here, deeming this to be an important and worthy issue. And that's all we're bringing to this is that gravitas of the Globe and Mail. And you know, it's not too late. Their year long, whatever experiment there is not over. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still hopeful that something good can come out of it, but, uh, yeesh so far. That's what I think. That's your Canada Land Shortcuts. You can email me about it. I'm at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Jen Gerson, where can people find you? Uh, for the next two weeks, they can't. I'm wandering off into the mountains to meditate and be alone. You don't even know how. Don't pretend. <laughs> That's true. I'll probably bring my phone with me and be Twittering. I'll be like, I'm in a mountain pass right now. Click, click. They can find you on Oppo next week, but if they go to canadalandshow.com this week... They will find a killer episode of Commons, the new season crude, all about the oil and energy business and stories that you just have never heard. This one about a batshit story about a religious fundamentalist saboteur, eco-terrorist versus the RCMP. The RCMP is blowing up oil projects. It's crazy. Check that out. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. If you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions, ad-free versions of our podcasts, you can get that when you support us with five bucks a month or more. And we do rely on your support at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.